0: Uh, in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter writes, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever." Now God, you tell us that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so we pray that you might give us humble and receptive and obedient hearts, that we might hear your word and that we might put it into practice. Uh, please lift us up and revive us. We pray but that your spirit might be at work among each of us as we hear your word read and preached, uh, that it might transform our lives for your glory. We thank you for the good news of Jesus And we pray that you might teach us to truly rely on you, uh, not on anything else, but just on you. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Maureen.
1: Good morning. The reading of this day is Isaiah chapters 11 and 12. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him And his resting place will be glorious. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah From the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the river Euphrates. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. And now chapter 12. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has been turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you.
2: Our second Bible reading today is uh, just a short one. Uh, from the New Testament, from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit
0: descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With
2: you I am well pleased. Were you ever in a fight or did something wrong that involved other people at school and only you got in trouble? Were you in a dust up in the school playground, but for some reason the teacher only picked on you to punish? Or were you caught talking with a group of others in class, but for some reason only you got into trouble? I feel so unfair when that happens, doesn't it? You know, you get that you need to be punished. You know, you did the wrong thing, so you deserve it. But what about the others? Didn't they do the wrong thing too? So shouldn't they be punished as well? I wonder if that's how Judah is feeling at the moment in Isaiah. So far in Isaiah, God has been focusing almost entirely on Judah and Jerusalem and their sins and how he's punishing them for them. But it raises a question. Other people are doing bad things too. Is God going to punish them as well? Israel has attacked them. Assyria has invaded them. Are they going to get off scot-free for that? Or will there be justice for them too? Well, that's why Isaiah writes, chapter 9, verse 8, to chapter 12, verse 6, to let Judah know that God is completely fair and that he will punish Israel and Assyria for their sins too. God is a God of justice. He will punish evil wherever he finds it. And he will not stop until he's done. But when he is done, when evil is completely destroyed, the way will then be clear for God to bring in a new age of peace that will last forever. There will be justice but then peace. And that's the great hope of Isaiah and according to Isaiah, the great hope of the world. So let's get into it. Our first point, infinite justice. When the US first announced its so-called War on Terror in 2001, they initially wanted to call it Operation Infinite Justice to convey the seriousness of their intent. But then they had to change the name to the much tamer Operation Enduring Freedom because people pointed out that infinite justice belonged only to God, not humans. Well, in Isaiah 9 verse 8 to 10 verse 34, Isaiah announces a campaign to hold Israel and Assyria to account for their crimes. And that can be called Operation Infinite Justice because it's God who's behind it. God says he is so opposed to evil that he will keep punishing it until it's all destroyed. And that only once every sinner has seen justice will he rest. It starts with Israel. We see that in 9 verse 8 to 10 verse 4. Israel and its capital, Samaria, have suffered some hard knocks in recent conflicts. But they're still supremely cocky about their ability to bounce back. Look at chapter 9 verses 8 to 10. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but... We will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But God has news for them. 9 verse 11 in the first half of 12. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. In other words, God will destroy them. And yet that still won't be enough to satisfy his justice because evil is still there. Look at chapter nine, verse 12 again. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. There are still evil leaders to deal with. And so he promises to punish them. Chapter nine, verses 13 to 17. And yet once he's done doing that, there is still justice to do. 9.17, yet for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. He still has to punish them for the way they treat each other. 9.18 to 21. And yet, 9.21, for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. He still needs to punish the rich for their oppression. In other words, Isaiah is making the point that this is Operation Infinite Justice. God is totally fair and he won't stop until all evil is destroyed. But that means that he can't just stop with Israel. He has to punish Assyria too, even though he used them to punish Judah for their sins when God sent uh, them to invade it in 701 BC. That's 10 verse 5 to 34. Look at 10 verse 5. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Now, at this point, you may wonder why God has to punish Assyria or why it's even fair to. Hasn't God just admitted that it was him who sent them to attack Judah So aren't Assyria just doing what they're told? But the fact is that Assyria didn't know that's why they were attacking Judah. And so they're still responsible. Sure, in God's plans, Assyria is his instrument. But as far as Assyria is concerned, they're just doing what they wanted, which was to slaughter another nation. 10 verse 7. But this is not what he, the king of Assyria, intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. And so, 10 verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes, which he eventually does. In 609 BC, Babylon destroys Assyria. Now, why is Isaiah telling Judah all of this? Note, all of these messages about Israel and Assyria are only about them. They're never delivered to them. They never heard these messages about them themselves. Only Judah did. Why? Because Isaiah is writing to reassure Judah, God is totally fair. Yes, He's punished them for their sins, but he'll also punish those who's hurt them for their sins too. That is, Israel and Assyria will get theirs. And when they do, that will mean relief for Judah because their enemies will no longer be there to attack them. Look at 10 verses 24 to 25. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you, as Egypt did, very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. God is totally fair, but ultimately his justice is directed towards saving his people. And you know, I think that has lessons for us about how we think about our enemies too. You see, until Jesus comes back, the Bible promises that Christians will suffer for being Christians. That will look like persecution in some countries, much milder, more personal discrimination in other countries like Australia. It might be tension within your family because of your faith. It might be criticism at your work because of your stance on particular ethical issues. It might be the gradual eroding of our rights to present the gospel freely in our society. We will suffer. Now, the first port of call in these situations is to pray for our enemies, that they will find mercy in Jesus and to have a forgiving spirit towards them in the meantime. Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But if they won't repent and keep making life hard, keep misrepresenting what you think and saying wrong things about you, keep sidelining you at work or the school gate because of Jesus, it is okay to take comfort in the fact that God will one day hold them to account for that. It doesn't mean that wanting that is the first port of call for our enemies. No, it's the last. As people who've received mercy ourselves and know we don't deserve it, we always want mercy for others, even our enemies, because we know how God has treated us when we were his enemies. But if they will not repent, it is also okay to hand people over to God. Romans 12 sums it up beautifully. Verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And he will. And if all of that seems a bit extreme for people who don't really make your life that hard at all, remember it for those of our brothers and sisters in the world who really do suffer for being Christians, and let that inform your prayers. Every year, hundreds and hundreds of Nigerians are murdered for their Christian faith, and they are currently under huge pressure from the militant group Boko Haram. Won't you pray for the conversion of their attackers, both so they can find mercy before a holy God, but also so the violence might end? But if they won't repent, won't you also pray that God will stop them and bring them to justice in the end? You can, even if you're not perfect yourself. And you should, because God is a God of infinite justice. But that brings us to our second point total peace. Because having promised to bring infinite justice once evil is destroyed, God now promises in chapter 11 to bring in a new age of total peace. And you'll see how we'll do it. He'll do it through a new king. Take a look with me at Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesse was the father of King David. So by referring to a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah makes it clear that the shoot will be a new king in David's line. And this king will be perfectly equipped for his role because... The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will be wise, mighty, and most of all fearful of the Lord in exactly the way you're meant to be fearful of the Lord, knowing that he is your ultimate king and mighty to save. Unlike Ahaz or the king of Assyria, this king will be the perfect king. And what will this king do? Well, according to Isaiah, he'll bring justice and peace. Look at verse 3. He doesn't mean that his decisions won't be evidence-based. He means that his insights will penetrate beneath the surface. He will be a king who rules with righteousness, punishing the wicked and defending the weak. And yet it's clear that he won't just be another merely human king of Judah. Perhaps Hezekiah, the last king on the throne during Isaiah's time, who was a much better egg than Ahaz because he makes it clear in the very next verses that this king's rule will spread peace around the whole world. You see where will he do all of this? Well, it'll be across the whole world. Look there at verses 6 to 9. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The creation this king rules over is clearly a very different world from our own. It's a world in which wolves We'll lie down with lambs, verse 6. Although personally, I'd still like to see the expression on the lamb's face. You know, when you go to a zoo, you see that they normally keep the carnivores separate from the herbivores. It's not very common to put the wolves in with the lambs or the lions in with the zebras. And yet in this world, they live together in peace. This is a new world. It's a world in which babies will play with snakes and not be harmed, verse 8. I was at the zoo recently with my kids and they had a petting area where they could go in and touch the animals themselves. Now, it won't surprise you to know that there were lots of rabbits and lambs and hamsters in that area, but not too many taipans. And yet here in this world, that's safe. He's clearly not talking about the world any of us currently live in. Rather, he's talking about a new world, one in which hostility between children and snakes. Genesis 3 verse 15, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That hostility is now over. He's talking about a time when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And who can be part of this world? Well, anyone in the whole world who wants to be. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This Jewish king in the line of David will bring peace to the whole world. And anyone from the nation who wants to rally to him can. And who will this be? Well, Israel and the world will need to wait a little time to find out. Then a man in the first century pops up in Palestine and this happens to him. Luke 3, 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one the spirit rests on. Jesus is the son God loves and is well pleased with, is at peace with. He's the one who will bring peace to a new world and he invites anyone who's willing to join him if only will trust in his rule. Life is full of conflict, isn't it? Might be dramas with your school friends or conflict at work, failed relationships, hard marriages, screaming kids at home, tricky people at church, soured friendships in old age. It's all so exhausting and all you want is some peace. Well God says you can have it. One day all that conflict will be over. You can live in a new world with total peace. All the evil and sin that disrupts our lives will have been destroyed and you can live in total peace forever with Jesus. If only you ask him for forgiveness and accept him as king. Isn't that a relief? And isn't it a spur to be a peacemaker now? To be the sort of person who calms tensions, not inflames them. Who points people to the mercy they can have from the Prince of Peace, Jesus, before it's too late. Because God is bringing in a world of total peace. It's It's an idea that excites Isaiah so much, he bursts into song. And he tells us to do the same. 12 verses 4 to 6. In that day you will say... Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. What wonderful news that our God of infinite justice is also a God of infinite peace. And that we can have it in Jesus now and forever. Let's pray about that now. Loving Heavenly Father, we lament at the world the evil we see in your world, directed against your people, but also just generally. Father, we long for a day when you will bring justice to your world, and you pray that you would. And yet, Father, we thank you that once you've brought that justice, you will bring in a new world ruled by a new King, Jesus which will be completely restored, where wolves will lie down with lambs, where people who were enemies will now live at peace because they've been brought to peace with each other through their peace with you, Jesus. Father, we pray that we might be peacemakers now, people who love peace and hate conflict, but also who want to see people come into a relationship with you so that they need not suffer your infinite justice forever but can rather have forgiveness, not because we deserve it, but because you love us. And Father, we pray that this great future, this great present, might make us so overflow with joy that we might sing to you. We might sing to you with all of our lives for your glory, for our joy and the salvation of many. Amen.